Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Some of you may have noticed that I did not release an episode this Sunday. I I have consistently put out two episodes a week for over a year now, since last May. And right now that's proving to be a little too much of a workload for me. And what I'm going to do is go back to one episode a week. I'll probably go back to two once I run another class, depending on what my workload looks like at that time. But I just wanted to let you know there's nothing wrong with your phone or your tablet. Restitutio is just going down to one a week for now. Today I have a great interview for you. It's a really important subject, a little scholarly, but hey, that's what we need from time to time, isn't it? This is interview 28 with Dr. Jerry Werewolf, where he talks about exegetical fallacies. And I want to start by asking you a question. Why do you think there are so many divergent beliefs about what the Bible teaches? Partially, this results from mistakes we make when reading Scripture. In this interview, Dr. Jerry Weir will enumerate seven typical fallacies that Bible students commit when reading. Avoiding these pitfalls will help you engage with Scripture and better build solid understandings that can stand up to scrutiny. Here now is interview number 28, Exegetical Fallacies with Jerry Weirwell. Today, we have Jerry Weirwell with us to talk about exegetical fallacies. Welcome to Restitutio, Jerry. I'm glad to be here again. Thanks. Before we get started at looking at specific examples of exegetical fallacies, do us a favor and break down those two words for us. What are we even talking about here? What is exegesis? What is a fallacy? And how does that relate to Christianity? Well, exegetical fallacies, a big word, maybe intimidating to some people. It's basically two words. Uh, the first word, exegetical, is just uh, describing the form of exegesis, which is to draw out from the compound Greek word, and it just means to kind of draw out the meaning from the text. And so whenever we study the Bible and we try to understand what the words, are, what the words mean in the Bible, we're performing exegesis. And the aspect of uh, fallacies are just when you make an error, when you make a mistake, when you say that uh, something is fallacious, it's, it's just wrong. And so we say exegetical fallacies, what we're referring to, we're referring to those wrong practices or those mistakes that can be made when trying to study the Bible. And uh, we're going to go through uh, several here on the show uh, that are going to deal with studying words particularly, which is what the Bible is composed of. So we spent a lot of time analyzing and studying the words of Scripture. I can already sense that some people might be uncomfortable with this, the, the nature of this information, because they will say, well, isn't the Scripture written clearly enough for me to understand it? Doesn't God help me as I read? Isn't there some sort of spirit-led understanding that I receive while I go. So how would you, how would you respond to folks that, that say, hey, you know, you're undermining either the, the classic doctrine of perspicuity, which is the idea that the scriptures are sufficiently clear as to be understood. We don't need a uh, cadre of Catholic priests and specialists to tell us 
what the Bible means. We can understand it ourselves. And those who also think that God is leading them and helping them understand it, and what do they need you to point out all these errors for? So how would you respond to that kind of like criticism to start with? Well, I would definitely affirm that the Spirit of God helps to illumine the mind of those who read the Bible and who actually desire to understand the revelation given in it. You know, the idea of the doctrine of Scripture, specifically the category of perspicuity, you know, that whole thing was really uh, developed in order to combat the notion that people couldn't read the Bible and understand that they had to defer to the authority of the church, of the priesthood and things like that in order to get the correct understanding. I think that it's mistaken if somebody wants to say that they don't need to learn Bible study methods. They don't need to understand language. I think that I think that's an over-exaggeration of, of our ability to comprehend language in the scriptures, that we need to understand how the Bible is written. We need to understand biblical manners and customs and the way people spoke. We need to understand the way that just communication, specifically written communication, operates and how to go about trying to decipher the message that's contained within the words on the page. And I think of any other field... Of course, you would want to learn from experts and teachers who are a little further down the line than you and that have already discovered certain mistakes. Think of like an, uh, an auto mechanic. An auto mechanic is going to want to know what sorts of procedures will damage the car engine they're working on before they make that mistake themselves or they will like to know how to fix something and and what's the typical way of doing it and yet for some reason when we come to the bible it's like no every every man and woman is their own expert and we don't want to receive any kind of instruction i think that's just a little unfortunate that we have this mindset and you know to be honest i want to know about potential mistakes i could be making while i read the bible uh you know and if I have read the Bible incorrectly in places, of course I want to do it better in the future and be aware of these things. So uh, let's get started. What is the first one you want to talk about? Well, let me get a running start here real quick and, and talk a little bit about what's called semiotics, which is a word just referring to what is language. And it basically, in its core meaning is that we have words, sounds that we produce that represent ideas, concepts, objects, and things like that. And the basics of semiotics is just that words make up meaning. And that's a, maybe a big shift because a lot of people might think that words have meaning. But what happens is we give meaning to words based upon the way they're used. And so you have to be careful because it's a circular reasoning that you say words have meaning because the meaning that the words have is because of the way that they're used. So we have to understand, though, that words have meaning only how we use them. And that's why words' meanings change. Because if words had static meaning, then they wouldn't go through fluctuations and things like that in meaning because they would always be the same. But in fact, as language progresses and things like that, words change meaning because how we use them then determines what meaning we assign to them. So like, for example, you have the word bank, which can be a turn, or it could mean a building that holds money. So is that what you're talking about, where one word can mean two different things? Or are you talking more about um, how the same word changes use over time? Yeah, it both. 
because okay. you know we have words like okay so you take the word rock uh you can say put the rock down uh don't rock the boat you're as stubborn as a rock i don't like rock music you you are rock solid that's a pretty rock on your finger the nut is rock hard it, i mean there's just so well, many. or there's the actor the rock there's the rock <laughs> dwayne johnson <laughs> yeah so it's just their words are, are fluid entities and semiotic theory just basically says you have to be careful the way that you approach words is through usage not through static definitions as we would find in like a dictionary mm-hmm. so uh, let's get into talking a little bit about some of these common mistakes that we might come across as we look at the words in Scripture and try to study them and understand what they mean. Uh, probably the most common one is called the root fallacy. Okay. And this one is so sometimes inconspicuous. People just don't realize that they're doing it. And what it is is that you assign a meaning to a word based upon its component parts. Right. You just say, well... The word, the root word of, of this word means this, or the it's a compound word, and these two parts of the word mean such and such. You put them together, it's like, basically, you take the sum of the parts, put it together, and you get the whole. Mm-hmm. And and that's the fallacy is, is that that's not the way words work. Words don't have, don't always necessarily reflect the meaning of where they come from. Let's look here. Well, sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't, would you say? Yeah, the fallacy is to always... Okay depend upon the meaning and a lot of people might be like well it's just common sense you know i mean you wouldn't always do that but you'd be surprised how many times people lean on that type of argumentation in order to try to make a point or to try to say well this is what i understand okay so well what would be an example of a word just in english where you can break it into its component parts and it does truly represent that most words i'd say a majority of words, you're probably pretty safe. Mm-hmm. The problem is that you, you can't just default to that. You have to be careful to make sure that you're looking at the way the word is used, and if it's used in its literal sense from its etymological roots, then okay, you're fine. Such as maybe something like backstabber. You know, we use that word to describe somebody who basically says something ill about someone else when they're not present. Right. And the word back and stabber is like to stab somebody in the back. And it's used in a metaphorical sense of that when they're turned away, you basically uh, assault their character. Right, yeah. And then you have the opposite case, like uh, the word butterfly. You can't imagine that the product from milk, we call butter, is flying around in the air. I mean, that's not really gonna help. Or understand does not mean to stand under something. Like you're standing under an overpass. You're like, I'm understanding. (laughs) That's not not at all what it means. So we have this in English as well, where the component parts perfectly describe the word and where the component parts really have either a loose connection or no connection to the actual usage of the word. Yeah. Also, though, it's not just a compound word like like we're talking about, but even the root of the word, such as the word nice. English word nice, a lot of people may not know it, but it it really, the root word means to be foolish and stupid. Really? Yeah. It comes through from like a 12th century French, though. And in the early like um, 13s uh, and 1400s, it, it meant to be kind of uh, timid and even fussy or dainty. And then it slowly came to be 
meant mean something more like precise or careful and then something like agreeable and delightful up through the 18th century into uh close to the 19th century where it became something that was kind and thought like something kind and thoughtful okay and so today we kind of say you know that's nice that's that's something kind and thoughtful Mm-hmm. That's well. so that, that meaning kind of yeah, like meaning kind of has has stuck since then, but there's been a, a huge development of the meaning throughout the the centuries. And so, if you look at the root from where the word comes from, you'd be completely misled on right. something like the word nice. Right. Okay. So let's look at a biblical example of this. Yeah, in Hebrews chapter eleven, verse seventeen, we, we read that by faith Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promise was ready to offer up his only son. This is from the the word only son. It's from the Greek word managenes. And and that's a literal translation, uh, only begotten or only son. Uh, The meaning, though, of that compound word, only son, though, is a little bit misleading seeing as Isaac was not Abraham's only son. He actually had a son before Isaac, and he he had many sons after Isaac. Hmm. Interesting. You yeah. know, the, the meaning of monogenes, it means more or less one of a kind, that he's like the only kind of son in a particular category. And specifically here, he's, he's the son according to promise. And he was the only son given to Abraham according to promise. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the way to handle the idea of the root behind a word is to make sure that you understand the way the word is being used in the context. Right. And then if you look at maybe the component parts of the word and the component parts match the usage or the meaning of the way the word is used, then that can add, sometimes it can augment and expound upon the meaning of the word, but caution has to be exercised because it's really easy to sort of look at the parts of a word and just automatically jump to an explanation about those parts trying to reflect the way that they're using the verse, which it has to go backwards. You have to look at the way a word is used in the verse, and then you can work backward to see once if its origin has any further meaning to enlighten the understanding of the way it's used. So we have to be careful. And there's they're experts, and that's why consulting lexicons and, and things like that are among the most helpful uh, uses in biblical studies because people have poured over these words for so long and they're very careful to make sure that they don't try to commit this fallacy. But even even scholars sometimes fall prey to this fallacy. So once again, the, the context is king as well as the usage in different places. Because you can even have it where one word might be used in a different way in different books of the Bible, depending on who is writing that book. Uh, so we want to be very sensitive to the immediate context, but then also how that word happens to be used throughout. So let's let's go to the next one and, and look at the time frame fallacy. Yeah, the time frame fallacy basically is about making sure that you're looking at definitions and meanings of words that are in usage contemporaneously with the writing. There's two of them. One's called semantic anachronism, where a word is used out of time. Uh, going forward, a newer use is used at an older time period, like a more ancient time period, and then semantic obsolescence, which an older meaning is then brought forward. Now, we'll talk really quickly. So like, for example, an anachronism would be something uh, such as in a modern language, the word pharmacy. 
You, the word pharmacy comes from the Greek word pharmakeia, which we find that word in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, amidst a concatenate of works of the flesh. And in that verse, is typically translated something like sorcery or witchcraft. And if we were to take the modern understanding of what a pharmacy is, which would be a, a location for medis- medicinal and, and drug distribution, and then somehow take that meaning and... Yeah, transport it back into the Galatians writing of the Apostle Paul that Paul was talking about drugs, Mm -hmm. specifically the kind that we would find in pharmacies, prescription drugs and things like that. That would would be to commit the fallacy that you can't take a a newer meaning of a word and then look back to where the word came from etymologically and then reassign that meaning to that word. Would you say it's the same as reading some sort of old English and thinking every time you see the word gay, they're talking about homosexuality? Yeah, exactly exact the same. The word gay used to just mean happy. There are a couple words like the word hussy. <laughs> okay. The word hussy in our modern culture has a very derogatory mm. connotation to it. It's like a loose woman. But back in the 1500s, it just meant a household woman, a woman who runs a household. And hussy is a... Uh, akin to the word housewife. They come from the same English root word, hus, which means house. Mm. And so a hussy was a, a woman who oversaw a house. And housewife was just the woman of the house. And they were okay. almost synonymous. But today, we don't use the word hussy in that way. And no. to say that uh, um, <laughs> back in the, the 16th century, that hussy had that derogatory meaning, it didn't. Yeah. If you call someone's wife a good hussy, uh, that's just not going to communicate today. Now, the other time frame problem is if you would ha- take an older meaning and then pull it forward. Now, this happens a lot when looking at classical Greek lexicons that go from the 8th century BC to like the 3rd century BC and what's called Attic Greek or Classical Greek, and then trying to take meanings that are used in that time period and then a- attributing those meanings to current usage in Koine Greek in the 1st century AD. Do you have an example of that? There's a Greek word, kephale, which means head. head. Yep. And in classical Greek, that word was used in, in ways to refer to a source or an origin, mm-hmm. kind of like the head of a river. The head of a river, yeah. But in, in the Koine time, the biblical Greek period, uh, that usage was really not used all that much. And it was more or less used to something that was at the top, like the head of a company, the person who organized things or your actual physical anatomical head. Right. And so when Paul writes about uh, kephala using it in like mm, 1 Corinthians 11, and he says, you know, want you understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. It's not, he's not using it in the sense of that the source or origin are all these uh, comparative items, but that there is a leadership role. There is a uh, hierarchy right, of authority. Of authority, mm-hmm. and so uh, to try and take a lexical definition from like a clas- classical Greek lexicon and then pull that into a biblical Greek context would be to commit the fallacy of semantic obsolescence, meaning that the meaning of the word that used to be in play is no longer in play in the culture. It kind of died out. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, I heard a debate over complementarian versus egalitarian perspectives and they uh the egalitarian defender used that argument that precise argument to defend the position that 
a husband and a wife are completely equal in every way. Uh, whereas a complementarian position said, well, the head means that this person is given authority over the household. So this is, this is something that's still alive and well in the 21st century, this fallacy. Even it's not a unanimously always that words have to change. There are even Greek words like katharos or catharsis, which the meaning means to be pure or, or clean uh, in the biblical culture. And we use a similar type of meaning today in our culture, something that's cathartic or that we say, you know, in meaning of catharsis is something that is clean or pure and usually refer to it in an emotional sense that cleansing yeah a cleansing and so meanings are so are can be fickle or they can be very stable right the thing is to you can't make the assumption that they're either or mm -hmm. it's always like you said context determines the meaning all right so let's move on now and talk about some parallels and how that affects things is this in reference to multiple gospel accounts or parallels in like poetic structure, or what are we talking about here? Well, it can it can be both and all the above. Really, you know, this one takes a lot of work, and I don't know if we can really go through um, a major example on it, but I do want to mention something is that parallels, the, the problem is that we see a certain phrase or wording a certain place, and if we see the same phrase or wording another place, we automatically like to link those two together. And the problem with that is that whether or not the word is being used in the same way in both cases isn't dependent upon if it's the same words that are in the same uh, area or if it's the same case or tense or whatever that just because there's a similar style or phrasing doesn't mean that the same meaning is being employed in both places the fallacy of seeing uh, of misusing parallels is that parallels alone, they don't create conceptual links between the two uh, occurrences. The only way you can establish such a link between parallels is to be looking at the context and seeing crossover cues that will further substantiate the connection, meaning possibly a similar subject or theme is being talked about, and then, uh -huh. and then therefore you have more substance to then attribute to why the parallel could actually be conceptually linked rather than just a linguistic link. So did you not want to go into an example on yeah, that? Yeah, I think okay. it'd take up too much time. Well, then let's move on. We don't want to get bogged down with just one here. We have quite a few to get through. Let's move on to the single meaning fallacy. What's that all about? Yeah, the single meaning fallacy. In the book D.A. Carson wrote called Exegetical Fallacies, his technical term is that this is the false assumption about technical meaning. And what this fallacy comes down to is that sometimes there are words in the Bible that carry a very specific nuanced meaning, a technical meaning. And uh, we get attached to those ideas and meanings of the word, and then we sometimes try to transpose those onto all the occurrences of the word, therefore making the word have a single meaning. And the example that I would like to go to to talk about is a Greek word, dikaiosune. Righteousness. Righteousness. The way that dikaiosune is used is we a lot of times we'll think about righteousness. Well, Paul talks about righteousness a lot in like his letter to the Romans. And so if we go to, for example, uh, maybe in uh, Romans chapter four, and we'll read that, uh, and to the one who does not work in like uh, verse five, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness. And he goes on, uses the word righteousness, dikaiosune, at least four other times just in this passage alone of Romans chapter 4. Now, when Paul talks about righteousness here, he's talking about a specific type of righteousness, what is called forensic or judicial righteousness, the idea of being viewed as having a right standing or being in a right relationship with God. Okay. Now, if we would, for example, go to another place, such as Romans chapter 6, so two chapters later, uh, verse 13, we'll see... Paul writes, no longer present yourselves members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And that you, having been set free, this is verse 18, from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, just two chapters later, Paul is continuing on this idea of what the gospel consists of in regard to the transference and the change of allegiance in a believer's life. But here he's not picking up this idea of forensic or judicial righteousness. He's talking about the conduct of one's life. He's talking about doing righteousness. So one's a, one's a, um, a standing before God. Are you in a state of uh, acquittal or guilt? And then others, what, what are your actions like? Is it... Are you acting in a moral slash righteous manner or in a, a wicked slash unrighteous manner? Correct. Yeah, moral and, or personal righteousness. Yeah. And then the fallacy then is to say, well, it mean is to establish one meaning, and then to say, well, every time we see this word, it has to mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that that's bad. Uh, and yeah. That we, that, and that we should not do that. That is to commit the <laughs> that is to commit the mistake of the single okay. meaning fallacy is is to not be sensitive to the way that an author can vary the use and meaning of a word even within the same literary unit. Yeah, so like even like Paul here in his letter to the Romans, within two chapters of each other, he is varying the meaning of dikaiosune. And that shouldn't be striking to us because we change the meaning of words all the time depending upon the subject and the topic of what we're talking about. So the encouragement that I would give for people who are studying words in the Bible and they're, they're looking at occurrences in many different places is to let the meaning of the word stand in those occurrences and not try to collect them together into one pile that could then fall under a single type of meaning, but to let the words uh, mesh with the context. And if the author is using the word in a different way, you have to allow that meaning to come through and you can't sort of truncate the definition of a meaning of a word because you you think it holds a special specific idea and i think dikaya sune is a, a great example of yeah, that yeah there's another word too i was thinking of is faith uh pistis yeah, pistis. pistis uh so this one in some places it can mean trust or trustworthy other other places it means the content of your beliefs 
or it could mean just like a belief in something. But if you if you believe that pistis has to mean one thing every time, no matter what, you're going to twist the scriptures into your pet meaning as opposed to allowing them to have the fluidity that all language has in any kind of text, any other place. Mm-hmm. I think the problem, though, is people wouldn't agree typically that a word has one meaning all the time. But when they th- study the Bible and they look at a word like pistis or dikaiosune, they will tend sometimes to want to give precedence to the technical meaning just because they think it's it's superior or they, they're trying to get some theological point out of it. And that that's to make the mistake to try to not let the text and the context sort of deliver to you the meaning, but rather you are imposing on it uh, more of like a, a theological technical meaning that you think the text should be saying. And usually it's for some type of biased or, or prejudicial reasons of your own. All right, well, let's move on and consider the word concept fallacy. What's that all about? The word concept fallacy really is about that an idea can be present in a text, even if a specific word associated with that concept is absent. Uh, so what happens is that readers, when they come to a text and they're looking for an idea of, for example, um, hypocrisy, if the text has hypocrites in the text itself, okay, great, that's the common word we translate, hypocrisy. The text doesn't have to have that particular word in it in order for the concept to be discussed. And a classic text is like back in Isaiah chapter 1, where Isaiah talks about hypocrisy, and yet in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'll never see the word hypocrites. Yet the this concept is extremely prominent in that passage in Isaiah 1. The point being is that when you study the Bible, the concept can be places where a specific word that's associated with the concept may not appear. Well, can you give us an example of this to help clarify what we're talking about? Yeah, uh, and I think that if we go to John chapter 21, you know, the technical name that Carson labels for this, and sometimes the boundaries between all these fallacies are, are a little bit, they overlap somewhat, because a lot of times multiple fallacies will have similar nuances, or they'll reach into each other's pockets to have the same mistake being made. He calls it problems that surround synonyms and componential analysis. And that's just basically the way that words are used and whether or not uh, synonyms can carry the same idea, which we probably would all agree that a, a synonym is basically a word that means a similar thing. And that's the problem with the word concept is that if you use a synonym, sometimes when saying the Bible, people won't like to give the same idea in both occurrences with where synonyms are, but they'd rather like to make a hard distinction that's saying, well, this word means this and it's used here, and that word means that and it's used there. But actually, in the Greek language, they are quite synonymous. Right. And one example here we're going to look at in John 21 is between two Greek words, agape and agapao and phileo or, or phile. And these are two words that are, they mean love. But sometimes uh, people have asserted that each of those words carries its own mutually exclusive meaning. And therefore, if, you, if agape is used, it means one thing. And if filet is used, it means another thing. So in John 21, we have Jesus's response here uh, after they had eaten. Jesus says to, to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? That's the Greek word agapao, the verb form of agape. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love phileo. That's the verb form of phile. I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. 
He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love agapao me? He said to him, yes, Lord, do you know that I love phileo you? He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love phileo me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love phileo you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So it seems it's like it's completely interchangeable here. Yeah, I would agree that that's, that is the case, that these words here in this context are being used basically synonymously. But because of the way that Agapaho has carried this weight of a special type of divine love, a, a selfless, sacrificial type of love that some scholars try to argue that Jesus is saying one thing and, and Simon Peter is saying something different. And then Jesus just gave up and used Simon's words. And then word. Jesus conceded <laughs> and accommodated to, to Simon because he wasn't getting it. Right. Yeah, but actually in this category here, and the thing about agapao or agape and phile and phileo is that in their semantic ranges or in their, their range of meanings, they have a, a large area of overlap, but they don't completely overlap. They're not equivalent terms in all respects. Phile or phileo sometimes carries the meaning of to kiss. But agape is never used in, in that sense. But agape is used in the uh, other sense of to just show f- familial love, to show brotherly or friendly love as well. And also, it's a huge theological term referring to God's love, specifically in the New Testament. So what has to happen when people study the, the words and the way that they're used is to not try to make false disjunctions between, well, this word has this meaning and therefore it can only mean that. And this word has this meaning, it can only mean that. You have, we have to understand that there's a gray area with a lot of words and where words are used synonymously, we can't impose a distinction, artificial distinction between them. Okay. What about the destructive fallacy? What does that entail? Well, actually, it's part of uh, the one we just talked about in John 21. But the example that I want to give is in James. If you go to the first chapter of James, we'll read in James uh, 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. And this is the Greek word perasmas. When you meet trials of various kinds. Now, the word perasmas has typically carried the idea of temptations. Right, temptation. When, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil and things like that. So, but here, when James talks about that you're supposed to be happy when you meet perasmoi, the plural form, that is not a meaning that's really theologically cogent. What James is using here is Peras Mosk also carries the meaning of just challenges, obstacles, and or as test or trial. trials. Now, however, if you go down a, a few verses to verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, Peras Mas, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James moves from just generic situations in life that are difficult, 
you know, challenges and trials. He moves now to a specific type of trial. He moves now to a trial that really opposes one's faith, a trial that is not given by God, one that God does not endorse, and which he says, the person who endures or remains steadfast is blessed through the trial, not just encountering the trial, but when they remain steadfast in the midst of the trial. And so to make a kind of like a hard and fast disjunction between the way peyosmos can be used for just generic adversity versus maybe wicked or satanic temptations, to say that it's either or is to commit the fallacy, whereas the semantic range is pretty broad and allows for either or to be used depending upon the context. And I mean, we still always just come back to that. If you neglect the context, you will misunderstand the meaning of words because the context forms the meaning. Words themselves don't carry inherent value. It's where it's how they are connected together with other words around them and how they're formed into a syntax of a clause and sentence and paragraph. All right, let's move to the last one and talk about the lexical fallacy. Yeah, the lexical fallacy or, or what's also called the overload fallacy. And, and D.A. Carson has a really long term. Uh, he calls it the unwarranted adoption of an expanded semantic field, which uh, another scholar named James Barr, he coined the term illegitimate totality transfer. And it's, a, it's, it's similar to the idea of the single meaning, which is the false assumption about technical meaning fallacy, where what you'll do is you'll basically adjust the way you see what a word can mean and you try to hone it down to like this core idea. Now, the illegitimate totality transfer just means that you take a wrongful meaning of the word from one place and then transpose it or transfer it to another place. And I want to talk about the Greek word ekklesia. Okay. And, and that word is, is the common word for church. And it's used very often referring to the Christian church in the early church in the, in the New Testament. The thing about ekklesia is that it has a, a larger semantic range or range of meanings than what a lot of people normally will acknowledge. For example, if we go to Acts chapter 7, verse 38... It says, he is the one who was in the congregation, the ecclesia in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living oracles to give to us. This is referring to Moses. And here also this happens in Hebrews chapter two, verse 12 as well, is that Israel is referred to as an ecclesia. Now, does that mean Israel is the church? Well, no, because ecclesia doesn't mean the Christian church in all of its usages. It means here just an assembly, a gathering. Elsewhere, though, like when Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Mm-hmm. Now, he's referring to those groups of people who he has founded throughout the Mediterranean world who are meeting in homes, predominantly in the early church, and those are his, the ecclesias. But to say that the type of ecclesia that, is, that Paul is referring to is the same type of ecclesia that Luke is referring to in the book of Acts would be to commit this illegitimate totality transfer of meaning, that you, you can't take the way a word is used in one instance and then modify the way it's used in another instance and kind of like 
incorporate that the previous meaning or other meanings and that's why Carson says it's you know the unwarranted adoption of an expanded semantic field is that you start uh, adding definitions to a word mm-hmm. wrongly so in other words keeping a simpler meaning as in a gathering of folks that's what ecclesia means rather than loading it up with the theological understanding of well the church invisible so to speak or the local scene yeah i think i mean there's there's about four different meanings of ecclesia in the new testament and to take the that semantic range and then take all those meanings and sort of transfer it to each one and then pick whichever one you like that's kind of adopting an expanded semantic range for like in ephesians 1 22 paul writes that he god put all things under his jesus's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church the ecclesia now this isn't a early first century church he's talking about here this is the universal spiritual church of god's people right this is this is a third um, meaning that we've come to see already Uh, and there's even a fourth one here just touch on in acts 19 when paul was in ephesus it says in verse 32 meanwhile some were shouting one thing some another for the assembly the ecclesia was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together 39 if there's anything further you want to know it must be settled in the regular assembly the ecclesia verse 41 when he had said this he dismissed the assembly the ecclesia actually we have two different meanings here there's just the 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 mob that's basically in the marketplace that is referred to as an ecclesia it's just people in the same geographical location and then later on though the regular assembly is actually referred to, is actually referring to like a a council meeting or an actual assembling of the leaders of the city to discuss matters and he's saying you, know, you should come into that gathering rather than just be out here arguing with one another and so to commit this fallacy is to sort of see that ecclesia can't have one idea in all its places it can't have also you can't take one idea in one place and pull it into another place so you can't transfer ideas from one context to another context so to commit the fallacy is to neglect the way that specific words are used in certain contexts again it's a violation of context every fallacy in word study is basically caused by the reader presuming that they control the context and meaning of the word rather than letting the actual words on the page, the words in the text, deliver to them the meaning. Mm -hmm. So in light of all these fallacies we've just worked through here, I think seven altogether, what would you say would would be a good course of action for somebody who is interested in this or concerned about this and they want to avoid fallacies while they're reading through? What would be a safe and accessible way forward for people? Let me give a word of encouragement before I give some advice on how to enter into studying the words of the scriptures. The basic bottom line is that readers of the Bible don't determine the meaning of the words. What we do, the task when we read the scriptures is to discover the meaning that the writers have employed in recording the words that they did. Okay. And that is accomplished by giving 
a very careful attention to the syntax and the context of around the words and not relying upon our theological pre-understandings to sort of dictate the way that we think certain scriptures should read or the idea of uh, looking at a lexicon and seeing five or six definitions that are given and picking the one that suits our pre-understanding. That's actually part of another fallacy where you just sort of prejudicially select the meaning that you would like to put into a verse because it suits your sensibilities from what you think the text should say. Now, for people who are going to the text, I would say that there are a lot of good resources out there, and I'll I'll give you a, a link, Sean, that maybe you can include with this podcast okay. on just to read through. So if you want to study the words in the scriptures, what are some of the basic ideas and procedures one should consider so that they don't haphazardly just commit one of these fallacies? Because we commit these fallacies without even knowing it a lot of times because we're trying to we're trying to seek meaning we're trying to understand the bible and if we can formulate a an understanding based upon some sort of reasoning capacity sometimes we just will default and go well well that's that's what i understand because i've taken these three pieces of evidence put them together and i have an understanding now now whether or not that understanding is actually legitimate whether or not it's it's faithful to the authorial intent of the writers (coughs) those are questions that the person who wants to study the scriptures and wants to try to understand what the scriptures meant to the original audience and exegete them properly have to pay careful close attention that they don't just follow their their own ideas and they don't try to just scoop together as much information and coalesce it together into some sensible understanding they will probably commit several fallacies in that process mm-hmm. okay any other advice uh, no, I, I guess the only other thing is that with all this discussion, I would I don't want the listener to be discouraged because you look at everything we've talked about and there's like, oh, there's so many pitfalls. You know, I, I just maybe I should just leave it up to other people to figure this all this stuff out. That's not the message that I want to give at all. It's that you just need to be cautious and that there are proper ways to understand literature. And this is not unique to the Bible alone. This is just the way the language works. When I talk about semiotics, it's just when we are writing notes back to each other or we're reading the newspaper or any any form of written literature, we're all practicing exegesis at those times. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to look at the way that certain words are connected together. We're looking at surrounding context about what's the subject, how's the tone and the flow and, and all this type of stuff. And when we read the Bible, the same we employ the same tactics. But we just need to be careful that we don't also bring along with it some sort of motivation that we have to now violate the typical laws of language and the way that written communication is meant to function. I was thinking while you were talking there about how I think if you read widely, like or even just take the newspaper example, like if you read the newspaper frequently, you're going to get how they use words and their particular angle. And so it's going to be easier for you to, you know, get a grasp on their meaning rather than somebody who's never read a newspaper before in their lives. And now you just like throw it in front of them and, 
you know, maybe they're in the editorial section and they don't know what that means and they're misinterpreting stuff all left and right and they're like, look at all this bias and these people, they, they call this reporting. This is just nonsense. And, and so it is with the scriptures. I think if we read big chunks of the Bible and increase our familiarity with the scriptures, we'll, we'll get to see how they use words and how those words make sense in that particular part that we're in. And I, I think in a sense, like that is one of the safest things we can do is read widely in the scriptures so that when we do zero in on some small little corner and a couple of words or a single verse, now we have all of that background knowledge that can help us to avoid some more of the simplistic fallacies that we're, we're looking at here. We can't be afraid to engage with the scriptures. Nobody has to know all these fallacies in order to, to be able to begin studying the Bible. You know, looking at the scriptures in the words in the, in the Bible is like basically just putting together a giant puzzle. And, you know, we have to take the pieces and start fitting them together. And as we go along, we'll learn the rules better and better. But we can't be afraid to not play the game if we don't know how to play basketball. Like, if we don't know, do you know how many rules there are for basketball? No, I don't. There's I like just like a whole handbook. I just know, I just know how to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but 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 if when, I actually had to explain it to somebody, it would take a while. Yeah, but when you started playing basketball, you just learned the basics, you know, so that you were able to at least get on the court, right. shoot the ball, and make sure you didn't travel. Well, like with my kids, I don't even call them on traveling because it's like, all right, just dribble when you can. <laughs> yeah, and, and if they travel, it's like, all right, we'll get to that later. Yeah, and and so that that's my heart is for people to to want to look at the scriptures and to desire to get involved themselves with the text and not to be afraid that, well, I, I don't want to travel because your kids, they'll learn that traveling is wrong as they grow more into the game. Mm-hmm. Well, and as we study the Bible more and more, we will just, we'll get, we'll gather more of the rules to understand the way language works, the way that uh, God has had so many different writers compose these texts to reveal his will to us. And so my, my last word here, just before we close off on this uh, session, is just for everybody who's listening to still maintain the, the interest that even if uh, we've talked about some, some lofty ideas on the way that language works and some big words, that all it is is just being, we're just talking about more specifics in what everybody is already in, involved in. Everybody's already involved in reading the Bible. Whenever you read the Bible, you're doing interpretive work in your mind, whether or not you know it or not. And all we're talking about is trying to focus and be more specific with how we're doing that work in our minds. All right. Well, thanks for doing the research and presenting this to us in a way that is easy to understand. I think reading Carson's book would be somewhat over-technical for a lot of us, although some of the listeners maybe would love to to get into that book. What's it called again? Uh, it's called Exegetical Fallacies. It actually is a fairly technical read, kind of dry. I would not recommend it. It has a lot of Greek, <laughs> has a lot of Greek in it. Okay, well, some of our listeners probably know Greek, so that, that's great for them. And uh, for the rest of us, we'll just have to wait until your book comes out, uh, should, should you write a book on this subject. But uh, thanks for coming in today, Jerry. I appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. Before I go, I just wanted to mention a couple of quick resources to help you out if you are interested in delving deeper into Bible study. First of all, I want to encourage you to listen to Werewolf's interview on hermeneutics that he did a while ago. 
and I have a link to that in the show notes, or you can just search in your podcast app for Jerry Weirwell or hermeneutics, if you can spell that word, and then you can listen to that episode. It's interview number two. Also, you can check out more sermons and articles and work from Weirwell on his website, jerrywearwell.com. And last of all, I have a link in the show notes to D.A. Carson's book that really drove this entire episode called Exegetical Fallacies. So if you want to get really into this subject, that's probably the number one place to go in order to really delve deeper. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Please share this episode on social media if you think it would be helpful for other folks. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.